Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I am a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Coronavirus. Suffice to say that it has been a globally catastrophic few months for so many of us and on so many levels. As we all strive to navigate our new realities of social distancing, shelter in place, and isolation. And as we all muscle through these unprecedented times, we hear a lot of encouraging messages like, we're all in this together. But that's not exactly true. There are other truly ugly intersecting realities that have been emerging in this devastating era of coronavirus. Hate, xenophobia, exclusion, and discrimination directed to Asian Americans. We've seen the headlines. In early February, a stranger in a subway station assaulted an Asian woman who was wearing a face mask in New York City and screamed that she was diseased. Before schools were closed across the country, we heard about Asian American children being kicked out of school for coughing while their non-Asian counterparts were not treated similarly when they coughed. Earlier this month, an Indiana doctor of Korean descent who works with cancer patients was verbally abused for being Chinese and spreading coronavirus and kicked out of a gas station by the attending clerk. I could go on and on with similar examples of these horrible headlines. There have been more than 1,500 direct reports of discrimination against Asian Americans since the end of January when we first started getting coronavirus cases in the U.S. These are some of the tragic developments in an already tragic time, and I have invited a couple of guests to dig into this conversation dedicated to the other ugly virus of 2020, anti-Asian bias, with me. I have Paul Tyson, a shareholder at Littler in the International Practice Group. Paul is admitted to practice as a solicitor in England, where she grew up. She has a UK and international advice practice at Littler and is now based in Seattle. Paul has a decades-long connection with China. After earning a BA at Yale in Chinese studies, she was among the earliest Westerners to study in the People's Republic of China in the early post-Mao era. Tal has a master's in East Asian studies and an MBA with a focus on East Asia and has also worked and studied in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Japan. I also have Jeannie Guanzin, a United States tennis professional and coach, an accomplished piano teacher, and a computer consultant. Jeannie is an entrepreneur extraordinaire who, many years ago, creatively found a way to combine all three of her passions into a business entitled Nets and Notes. 
Jeannie spends half of her time in Maui, Hawaii, where she was born, and the other half in American Canyon, California, where she grew up. For the record, Jeannie identifies herself as a Hawaiian-born Filipino. In addition to Jeannie's aforementioned roles, and in an effort to be completely transparent, Jeannie has also been one of my dearest friends for the past 25 years. Tal and Jeannie, thank you both for joining me during this difficult and almost surreal time in an effort to tackle an unfortunate development. Tal, I'm actually going to start off with you. The specific origin of COVID-19 is unknown, but scientists have apparently detected similarities with other diseases like SARS, found to be carried by bats, pangolins, and certain types of cats. And although scientists and public health officials are still investigating COVID-19's transmission capabilities, there is significant speculation about cultural eating habits, real or imagined, that are said to originate from China and that are fueling the xenophobia around this virus that we are discussing today. So, while it is true that coronavirus had been identified in Wuhan last December and had yet to be named a global health crisis at the time, comment on the continuing rhetoric that persists now, four months later, around phrases like Wuhan virus or Chinese flu? Look, when I first became aware of the crisis in Wuhan, Wuhan virus was the only way that it was referred to. And it was certainly easier to remember at first than this word coronavirus. It was just easy and it made logical sense at first since that's where they were battling it. But mm -hmm. as it was better identified and named COVID-19, you know, I was reading everything all the time on this. And somewhere I read that we needed to stop identifying it by a place and how counterproductive this was. So that immediately resonated with me that we needed to stop. And I worked to make sure that any reference to Wuhan or China be replaced with COVID-19 in our newer materials that we were putting out for clients at Littler. Mm -hmm. So now when I see individuals who persist in using that terminology, from the context, it appears that it's being done very deliberately to deviate from the official terminology. And this is not just pointing at China, but is intended to be pointing at Chinese people and people from Asia more widely. So mm -hmm. to be clear, while there may be legitimate reasons to critique any government's response to handling COVID-19, the kinds of rhetoric we're hearing, it's not just about a government-specific response. It's not just criticizing the government of China. It is pivoting to ethnocentrism. And frankly, I've seen this a little bit with northern and northwestern EU countries towards southern and eastern EU countries. And there's also issues in relation to discrimination against Roma people in the context of COVID-19 in Europe. So to be clear, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. But I think what we're seeing in the U.S. is the manifestation of a hostile and ethnocentric rhetoric being used by some against people of Asian ethnicity. Understood. And I should mention that this is not your first rodeo on the pandemic scene, is it, Tal? No, unfortunately it is not. I spent 
four years in-house responsible for the Expedia Group's employment law globally. And during my time in that position, the 2009 H1N1 pandemic occurred. Uh, I don't know if you recall this, but the uh, H1N1 was first detected in the United States in April of 2009. And what we now understand about it is that this virus was a unique combination of uh, influenza virus genes that were never previously identified either in animals or people. The virus genes were a combination of genes most closely related to North American swine lineage H1N1 and Eurasian lineage swine origin H1N1 influenza viruses. So because of this, initial reports referred to the virus as a swine origin influenza virus. However, uh, investigations of initial human cases didn't identify exposure to pigs. And quickly it became apparent that that virus was circulating among humans and not among U.S. pig herds. Exactly. And if you recall, there were very negative impacts when it was so named on related economic sectors affecting commerce and trade for pork farmers and importers, for instance. Again, how we name a virus can have incredibly serious consequences for people's lives and livelihoods. Isn't that right, Tom? Exactly, exactly. The H1N1 flu, also called swine flu, was wrong because ultimately it was found not to come from pigs. And according to the CDC archives, it started in San Diego County, California. And I've never heard of people being hostile to Californians before <laughs> that, but I do live in a bubble. Right, right. So, look, intellectually, we get that while it may have started in China, the virus is not, in and of itself, an ethnocentric virus. People of Asian descent in this country and around the world are at risk. So why is this ethnocentric rhetoric allowed to persist, Tom? That's such a complex question, Cindy Ann. I'm figuratively and literally isolated right now, so I'm not in the trenches with this rhetoric and I'm not able to ask people what they're actually thinking. But based on my experience and understanding of history, it's a knee-jerk reaction to identify someone other to blame and then people will run with that to a degree that's toxic and not related to the actual facts. It's very easy for that kind of emotion to be manipulated. I think we saw attempts to exploit this kind of emotion in other countries, including China also, with conspiracy theories about the virus originating in a lab elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And here in the U.S., there is an existing strain of anti-Asian bias that seems to have been re-triggered. Right. And obviously, and unfortunately, anti-Asian bias is not new. A quick historical summary here for the benefit of our listeners from an article entitled Coughing While Asian, penned by Lauren Aratani in the U.S. edition of The Guardian last month. And to quote Professor Claire Jean Kim, a professor of political science and Asian American studies at the University of California at Irvine, Quote, Chinese immigrants have historically and cyclically been regarded as inferior, filthy, and diseased. When Chinese immigrants came to America in 1870, they were painted as a threat to the white working class, leading to racist attacks and segregation, end quote. Let's also recall the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that barred Chinese laborers from immigrating to the U.S. And then, of course, 
the rounding up of and scapegoating of Japanese Americans for internment camps across this country during World War II. So are the attacks to which Asian Americans are enduring in this era of COVID-19 the latest tragic installment of the yellow peril, to coin uh, a well-known and unfortunate phrase? It seems to be that there's something simmering there that we think is in the history books, but then with disbelief, we see that it can actually be goaded back to life. Mm. And otherness and exclusion is so rampant in times of crisis and the spread of disease. The Irish got blamed for cholera, Italians for polio, and Haitians during the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis, to name just a few. And while I appreciate the role of fear in times of crisis, as people lash out at the easiest target, talk to us about the role that our leaders, both in government and in corporate America, can play in tamping this kind of rhetoric down. Leaders craft the narrative. Yeah. We look to them to frame the issues. We expect that. It's literally their job. If a leader frames a narrative of inclusion, of common humanity and helping other people, then people will step into that framework. Even if there's a counter narrative out there, an organization's leadership has the job of setting the tone for that organization. We see this all the time in global organizations with equality and diversity policies, anti-harassment, anti-corruption, and we deal with the fact that different cultural and legal norms may exist in our different geographic locations. But we can define an organizational culture that's based on a specific standard that leadership can set. And that leadership can choose to make it real and important. Okay, this standard can be equality, dignity, inclusion, but you have to define it. You have to teach it and demonstrate it. Don't assume everyone knows what you're thinking, that we all have the same ideas and values. Organizations can actually be powerful agents to combat this kind of problem because they can control their own culture. And if people experience it within the organization, then they learn it. It's not always a problem of malevolence, of bad people. We see again and again in history that a critical mass of people do get past this and reset the tone in society. But we have to be vigilant and leaders have to step up. Excellent point. And we all make mistakes. After all, in the early days, many of us got it wrong with what we called it, right? Well, yeah, as I mentioned, I did. And the reason that I did is that I didn't have another word. I didn't have the vocabulary. But look what happened when I read that. I changed. You know, coming to the U.S. from the U.K. many years ago, I had a different vocabulary than people had in the U.S. In the U.K., we were still using the term oriental to refer to people mm -hmm. from Asia and to Asian history, like the famous School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And I was mortified when I was told it was racist <laughs> to use the word oriental in the U.S. I had no bad intent, but I sure had to be told that it because it was new to me. So I think right. it's really important to explain and help people understand. And in this case, with the virus, people may be hearing it referred to as the Wuhan virus or the Chinese flu. And what we can do within organizations is explain that this is hurtful and divisive and that the better term is COVID-19. 
So we get some education, we say mea culpa, and we course correct. Great, but does it help that elected leaders in the highest positions in this country continue to fuel this xenophobic rhetoric by doubling down that the virus comes from China or that China is to blame? Well, sure, it makes it harder. On the other hand, it's an opportunity to be explicit about organizational values and to have a great positive impact. It is not a time to be complacent. Agreed, agreed. Let's consider the various ways in which the issues related to this rhetoric can show up in a workplace. Let's consider this scenario. How does an employer respond to an individual employee who may voice their very real, if even misinformed concern from a health concern about working alongside a colleague who hails from Wuhan and engages in certain cultural practices related to food, for instance, that this person genuinely believes is responsible for COVID-19? It's really such a big responsibility that employers have. They have a responsibility to think through how to provide clear guidelines so that the actual danger is understood and addressed. For example, in the early days of the epidemic, before it was a global pandemic, we spent a lot of time trying to keep up with the changing sources of the threat. By having clear guidelines based on CDC guidance, we could say who was or was not a threat. Someone who had just traveled from Wuhan originally, then Northern Italy, then all of Italy, now the whole world is potentially infectious and not even showing symptoms. So you have to have guidelines based on rational evidence that's not discriminatory and apply them. Now, if you wanna be more conservative, and in the early days we had many employers who saw that the virus could pose an existential threat to their business, and so they wanted to be more cautious in those guidelines. We helped them craft non-discriminatory guidelines. For example, they may thought to first restrict all travel to Asia, but the evidence was that this virus was in specific hotspots. So we helped to identify those hotspots equally. And this was more effective in protecting the business and in reassuring employees that the business was on top of the facts and protecting them. Right, now given the dismal models of the spread of coronavirus that we've seen in parts of this country in the past few weeks, would it be different if the same employee objected to working alongside a New Yorker or a Michigander due to his or her relationship to those states? No, I mean, the threat is everywhere now, so one needs to be concerned about all sources of infection. Exactly. Let's, let's consider another scenario. Let's say you've got an executive employee who's based in the UK and whose duties specifically involve travel to parts of Asia, including China, expresses her refusal to physically travel to China after we flattened the global curve. Business returns to normal, whatever that new normal looks like in a few months from now, and international travel has resumed for businesses. What's an organization to do, Tal? Well, if this was in the UK, the UK employer's duty of care also includes a duty to care for someone's psychological well-being. So an employer would want to talk to the employee about her fear and address it if reasonably possible. It would require creatively thinking through how to help the employee. 
maybe the fear is not unreasonable for her if she has read that there could be a second wave of infection. But this will have to be balanced against how critical it is for the business, for the employee to actually go there in person at that time versus maybe waiting to see what was going to happen if she was very anxious. And it may require considering if she could do another job or if this was something so critical to the business that she just would not be able to do the job if she felt she didn't want to travel there ever again. But it would be a process with the employee. Right, right. Okay, so I can hear our listeners. Bring me a solution, Cindy Ann. To that end, how, how exactly can we go about denormalizing the association between the coronavirus and those of Asian descent in the workplace context? Give me the next practices. Not the best okay. practices, the next ones. The next practices. Establish an organizational COVID-19 narrative. Do not talk about this as the Wuhan or Chinese virus. Talk about all the ways in which we're helping each other get through this and how others are helping us. Highlight compassion and create opportunities for employees to help others. I was so inspired to read a story in the April 5th Seattle Times about Seattle's immigrant Chinese American community coordinating the donation of tens of thousands of masks and other personal protective equipment from money they raised to purchase the equipment from China and then distributed to local hospitals, fire stations, nursing homes in the state of Washington. So give mm. people the opportunity to help make it personal and real. Yes, yes. In a post-coronavirus era, when we return to traditional work structures, complaints will get filed with human resources if these instances of anti-Asian bias continue. And companies are going to have to figure out how to address all of it, won't they, Pal? Oh, yes, absolutely. So if you can, provide a few key guidelines for companies who will have to navigate post-COVID anti-Asian bias in the months and years ahead, again, for the benefit of our listeners. In the end, I've got four points. First, be aware that people may be thinking like this. Just because you don't think like this doesn't mean that others aren't coming from a different place, from communities where there may be an echo chamber around this. Second, right. disrupt it. Disrupt it. Be prepared with talking mm -hmm. points that are clear, not politicized, to respond when you hear it. Third, be proactive. Right alongside your return to work hygiene practices, define your cultural hygiene practices and what that means exactly in your organization and consider training around this. Fourth, there's gonna be a lot of pain, economic, personal loss for a long time after this is over and this is a wonderful opportunity for any organization to be a community and to use teamwork to help others. People love to help others. Find ways to leverage your teamwork to facilitate this. And if you can reach across cultures and borders to do this, like that group in Seattle did, all the better. Yes, absolutely. Incredible advice. Thank you, Tal. Thank you. Thank you, you Cindy Ann. Now, we have been talking quite a bit about the social and workplace implications as a result of this latest installment of anti-Asian bias during this pandemic. But I want to switch gears 
and explore some more personal aspects of the issue. And to that end, I would like to bring Jeannie Guanzen into the conversation. Jeannie, thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me, Cindy Ann. Now, as I indicated in my introduction, you identify as an Asian American, but more specifically, as a Hawaiian-born Filipino. Say more about that. I was born in Eva Beach, Oahu. I'm Hawaiian-born and a U.S. citizen. I am proud of this aspect of my heritage because Hawaiians are so friendly and everyone is treated as being in one ohana, which means family. Hawaiians have a lot of respect for where they came from. We also honor our parents and we worship the land we are on. But I'd also like to acknowledge my Filipino heritage. My parents are from the Philippines. So when people hear me identify as a Hawaiian-born Filipino, I think it better defines the Asian American subgroup to which I belong and of which I am incredibly proud. Understood. Now, in honor of next month, May, being Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, it must be a further source of pride for you that Asian Americans are said to be the best educated, highest earning, and fastest growing racial group in the U.S. Yes, it is good to hear that. I was raised in American Canyon, an area that is now described as the gateway to Napa Valley. And when we were growing up, I used to joke with my sister that this American Canyon is really a canyon, a town with cows and land and a few housing developments. It had one elementary school, and in my junior and high school years, we were bused to school in Napa that was about 45 minutes away. So growing up, we could count the number of colored people on my two hands. The majority of the people here, we're all white. 50 years later, American Canyon's demographics are now about 40% white and about 36% Asian. This shows the demographic changes sweeping the country and the fact that the United States is a nation of immigrants. Furthermore, it is this diversity of the population that contributes to the strength and progress of our nation. Right, and let me just say I'm willing to guess that your use of the term colored was a reflection of the time in which you were growing up at the time, right, Jeannie? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, if I may be frank, as a group, Asian Americans have been considered to be highly successful. For example, and according to a recent report from the Pew Research Center, while less than 30% of the general population has a bachelor's degree, approximately 51% of Asian Americans do. Also, economically, the median annual household income of households headed by Asian Americans is just over 73000 compared with $53,000 among all U.S. households, even though there are a few differences with these averages among different Asian subgroups. But there are some so-called positive biases, and I use the term very loosely since it's a bit of an oxymoron, we'll 
uh, address a little later on, that accompany these successful data points, right? I mean, talk to me about some of these so-called positive biases from your personal perspective. We Asians were the whiz kids that mm -hmm. were always good at math and science and overall, we always were getting the highest grades possible in each class. Right. Why? Because when we were growing up, our parents would still in an us that we needed to finish high school and college with the highest possible grade. Mm -hmm. My mom was a teacher in the Philippines, so she always stressed the importance of grades. Getting an average grade wasn't an option with my parents. And how did that emphasis on grades and studying work out for you? <laughs> I did get a Bachelor of Science degree and a Master of Business Administration degree. And both degrees have been put to good use in my own business, Nets and Notes. And I did become a tennis player, professional, and a coach, all three of which, ironically, have their own stereotypes of being male and white. Right. <laughs> what about the crazy rich Asian stereotype? Oh, yes. People always thought we were rich. Personally, I wasn't rich monetarily, but we were rich in other ways, such as religion, family values, and education. We always went to church together. We always went shopping together. We ate together. We played sports together. We always studied together. Our strong sense of family and togetherness, that's where our wealth came from. Right. Now, Asian Americans are often referred to as the model minority, but that's not necessarily a compliment since they are often held to a higher standard from others. So that when, for instance, your performance is graded as average, you're probably seen as having failed somehow, right? I mean, even though expectations were met. <laughs> when I was in junior high, seventh to ninth grade back then, uh -huh. I was known for being a prodigy and a model student. And I also became the student body president, and it even made the Napa newspaper. I did get straight A's, and then in the 10th grade, though, I received my first B+. Plus. It was Ooh. in biology class. And Cindy Ann, I thought it was the end of my world. Oh, I no. cried. <laughs> yeah, I cringed about having to tell my parents about it. When I did tell them, they claimed that they weren't upset, but they did insist that I try harder in the future. But they weren't upset. <laughs> so do the stereotypes ever get exhausting, Jeannie? <laughs> Absolutely. But I realized early on, it was just reality and I just stayed focused on studying hard and trying to be the best always. Mm -hmm. I never let any of the bullying that I have occasionally endured as a result of being Asian get in my way when I was growing up. Right. Now, just because a group has been successful does not mean that we should ignore the bias, again, even if it's labeled as positive. Exactly. Stereotypes of any kind prevents other people to see the stereotype group as human beings. Right. 
Let's talk about language for just a quick moment, Jeannie. When I'm talking about inclusion effort to my clients and the power of words, they are often surprised when I take them to task on words or phrases that they allow to happen on their watch. And, and there are real-time implications for the language that we allow or don't allow. And can you just comment on that from a personal viewpoint and in light of the information that I shared about the spike in hate speech that is being directed to members of your community during this current crisis. This is a scary time for all of us. COVID-19 affects all of us, but having to combat racism and xenophobia and COVID-19 all at the same time is just an additional stressor. For instance, in early March, before the shelter in place went into effect, I offered to pick up some food for the dinner party at a friend's house. I suggested Chinese food from the nearby Chinese restaurant. Well, one of my friend's guests actually blurted out, and I am quoting here, I don't want Chinese food because we will get COVID-19. Mm. That made me so sad, Cindy Ann. It made me realize that Stupidity is also a virus. And perhaps this would be a good segue at this point. You may recall a few weeks ago after considerable criticism and in an effort to assert that he was not perpetuating anti-Asian racism with his insistence on calling COVID-19 the Chinese flu, Donald Trump tweeted that, and I quote, it is very important that we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. They are amazing people and they are working closely with us to get rid of it, unquote. Jeannie, what are your thoughts about those words, particularly they and us, in a supposed effort to walk back his comments about the origins of the virus and at a time like this? Like I said, stupidity is a virus in the end. I really resented the fact that President Donald Trump used the terms Chinese flu and Kung flu. It really incensed me. Mm -hmm. As you stated earlier, Asian Americans are said to be the highest earning, best educated, and fastest growing racial group in the United States. We are a core part of this country. So his comments were very, very disturbing to say the least. Understood. We have just begun talking about this issue and we will clearly have to revisit it. In the remaining few minutes that we have left for this particular segment, are there any closing remarks that either one of you would like to make for the benefit of our listeners? Thank you, Cindy Ann, for initiating this incredibly important conversation. As we sit here today um, on the middle, in the middle of April, um, we're all still isolating. And I think the most important thing that I'm seeing right now is the power of kindness and the power of compassion that in our isolation, we need to think towards the time when we will come back together and how we will do that, how we will be changed. Um, and I think that 
we cannot underestimate the power that organizations and leaders have to help us bridge uh, that divide that we're experiencing now and really come together with inclusion in a post-COVID-19 world. Yes. Well stated. Well stated. Jeannie? I want your listeners to remember that we are really one big ohana in this fight against this horrible pandemic. So let's act like it. Thank you, Jeannie. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us for this important conversation and providing such a heartfelt perspective. It was my pleasure, Cindy Ann. And again, mahalo for inviting me. Please stay safe and stay healthy since you are part of my Onohana. Thank you again, Jeannie. As I said, this is the first of several conversations that we are sure to have on this topic, but I look forward to our next conversation. Tal, my learned colleague from our Seattle office where she is a shareholder, and Jeannie, my dear friend and one of the savviest businesswomen I know, I thank you both for taking the time to dialogue around this incredibly critical topic. And to all of our listeners, let me say this in parting. Remember that there is no such thing as a passive bystander when it comes to flattening the curve to the ugly virus of racism. Be well and stay safe. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.